I invite you this morning to turn back to John chapter 4, if you haven't already, as we'll be looking at the next part of this message we started last week about living water of eternal life in our series on the book of John, where we find life in Jesus, the Son of God. And indeed, this woman at this well in Samaria that day had an encounter with Jesus Christ, the Son of God, the Messiah, the one who had been promised to take away sins. And so we look forward today to, to seeing the rest of, of this interaction. And then the next time that we're together, um, and we continue on in John chapter 4, we'll see the things that happen in that area of Samaria because of Jesus and the things that he had to say and that woman uh, who believed in him. Father, we thank you for this opportunity to open your word for a few minutes today to study it together. We ask that you would meet with us over the next few minutes, that you would minister to our hearts, that you would truly use your word like a hammer that breaks the rock in pieces to get past the defenses we put up, to get, fa- get past the, the excuses or the, the hurts and the wrongs that have been done in our lives. Lord, would you go deep into our hearts and show us who you are, show us who you want us to be in you. Show us today the deepest need that no one else knows because you know the state of our hearts. Lord, we ask that you would give us willing and humble hearts today to respond to you in whatever way you call us to do. In your name we pray, amen. Over the years, Christianity has been defined in various ways. Some have defined Christianity as what we may call behavior modification. They view the Bible as this guide to becoming a better person. If you will take what God has given you in your life and you will seek to improve upon it, the Bible will be your guide. The thinking behind this is that no one is perfect, but we should all seek to become less perfect, and thus at the end of our lives, if we've made enough changes, we might obtain eternity and heaven. Others have defined Christianity as the path to happiness. In this mentality that says God just wants you to be happy, we are told that God loves us just as we are, and there's no need to change. It is a path of spiritual self-affirmation, and it emphasizes the earthly happiness that one can feel by just accepting yourself because he gets us. Still, Others have defined Christianity as a let go and let God mentality, or even the other side of do your part and God will do his. The first of these emphasizes that God will magically transform me, and we don't need to do anything. If, if he selects me and does something, then, then that's his work. The second makes it God into some, and, and me into some type of, uh, of, of equal partners to get me into eternity. Still others have defined Christianity, not by Christianity itself, but perhaps by a denomination, that, that if you're part of, of this church or that church, uh, you have it right, and if you follow all the tenets of, of the external things that church tells you to do, then you'll be okay. And I suppose there are still other views that we can continue to present with their basic tenets on Christianity, but clearly there is a myriad of broad ideas available to us as to what it means to be a Christian and all that that entails. So, so how do we boil it all down? How do, we, how do we cut through the noise and find out what it truly means? You know how you do that? You do that by turning to Jesus, the author and finisher of all true faith. 
It is he who established what we refer to as true Christianity. It is he who established the church, and it is he who tells us what it is. And as you study the scriptures, one thing becomes crystal clear. There are not many ways to heaven and eternity. There aren't even several religions that get it right. There is only one way into eternity, and it's not through religion. It is through a relationship with Jesus Christ. In the area of Samaria, in the land of Israel, almost 2,000 years ago, Jesus revealed himself very plainly and openly to a woman at a well. It was here that he showed her the need of her heart and how that need was met in himself. And Jesus shows that need to us today as well as we read the scriptures. And what we see in this passage is that Jesus is the only source to meet the need that all mankind experiences, eternal satisfaction and security in him as the eternal savior. You and I all have the same need. We all have the same questions about our lives. We all have the same questions about what happens to us when we pass from this life and into the next. And we all feel the the same guilt over sin, the same anxiety over things in our life. And God is the answer to all of those things. And we can only know God through Jesus Christ. And so let's look today at the rest of this passage that we began last week about the living water of eternal life that Jesus offers not only to this woman at the well that day, but to all who will come to him, and what that means for our lives if we've accepted him. So I want to recover just briefly some of the things we talked about last week. We we first of all looked in verses 1 through 6 at the setting of this occurrence in the life of Jesus. And we saw that that Jesus was departing from the southern area of Israel uh, in Judea to go towards Galilee, which is in the northern part of the nation of Israel. Because as we noted before, Jesus' popularity was growing in the land of Israel. And the Pharisees had begun to take notice that Jesus was baptizing, or his disciples on his behalf were baptizing more disciples than John had baptized. These people who who recognized their need of repentance from sin to prepare their hearts for the work of the Messiah. And the man, that is John the Baptist, that the religious leaders of Israel had questioned about his identity in John chapter 1 and his possibility of being the Messiah, is now falling into the shadow of Jesus who is the Messiah. And this will undoubtedly raise questions and confrontations. And Jesus, knowing this, departs from Judea and begins to make his way north to Galilee. And we learn here that he needed to pass through a region of Israel that at best had become a sore spot in the nation as Jesus had to pass through this area of Samaria. And last week I spent a good bit of time talking with you about why Samaria and why the Samaritans and the Jews did not get along. And we see that Jesus and his disciples arrive in a, city, in a city in Samaria known as Sychar. And it's on that land that a well that Jacob, a, a patriarch of Israel, had built. And here, as he was tired from the trip, he sat down to rest. And as Jesus rests, we see the divine appointment that takes place beginning with the Samaritan that Jesus meets. And that's what we saw last week. The second thing we saw last week was the Samaritan woman that Jesus began a conversation with. And it's a shocking interaction because as she approaches to draw water from the well, Jesus requests a drink from her. It's a very surprising thing, not only because she is Samaritan, 
but also, we said, because she is a woman. And in that context, in that culture, men did not speak to women in public, not even their wives in public. And then, of course, you add to it the layer that she is a Samaritan and he is a Jewish rabbi. And so Jesus, the rabbi, a rabbi of Israel, but the king of kings and lord of lords shattered all the barriers here to reach a needy soul. And we see that this woman is taken aback but not afraid because throughout this passage, she has quite a lot of thoughts that she expresses and questions that she asks. And here, she expresses her shock at Jesus' request for a drink as she is a woman and a Samaritan. And Jesus takes this simple earthly request and uses it to show his infinite wisdom and power because, because Jesus often illustrates the eternal truths of God with the physical mundane things of our everyday lives. Jesus began to delve into the needs of the woman standing before him by turning the tables because she had come to the well that day and found a man who was physically thirsty and tired from his journey. But in reality, the need that she was experiencing in her heart of an eternal thirst for the things of God was greater than any physical thirst that Jesus was experiencing. We, are, we understand that a well in the desert, especially in the dry, arid climate of Israel, was the difference between life and death. Jesus, we said, is the difference between eternal death and eternal separation and damnation for sin. The physical water before them in the well would meet the need of a tired and weary and thirsty person, but that need would resurface time and again. However, the water of spiritual life that Jesus offered would meet the need of that person once and for all. There is nothing but settled rest and peace found in Jesus alone for salvation. And yet, we've noted that this woman still had trouble understanding what is offered because her her mind, and if we read that passage a few minutes ago, you may have seen this, that her mind is only on the water before her. Jesus talks about offering living water. And and, and I told you last week that Greek word refers to, yes, the, the spiritual thing that Jesus is talking about, but it also refers to a spring that continually feeds something. And she continues to focus on how are you going to get down there and get that water out of that well because you don't have anything to draw with. And Jesus continues to patiently show her that the eternal satisfaction he is talking about being found in himself. But again, as this woman continues to only see the water before her, we read that that she wishes that he would give her this living water. Why? Because carrying that bucket back and forth to the well was very inconvenient. And she wished to never come back and draw that water again. And so... Jesus will show her the need of her heart by showing her the sin that he had come to forgive and the life that he's come to impart when here before him in her life is only death is on the horizon for a soul that is lost in sin. So let's look today at the third thing we see in this passage. We see the sin that Jesus comes to address. In verses 16 through 20, Jesus begins to reveal this woman's sin. Jesus said to her, go, call your husband and come here. The woman answered and said, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, you have well said, I have no husband, for you have had five husbands, and the one whom you now have is not your husband, in in that you spoke truly. 
So in order to show this woman her heart's greatest need and the hope that's found only in himself, Jesus continues to drive her towards the problem of her own life. And so therefore, Jesus commands this woman to go back to her home and to bring her husband with her. And you must understand, this is not a dismissal of this woman as unworthy. This is not, hey, would you please go get your husband because I'm obviously not getting through to you. What Jesus is doing here is showing this woman that she has a need that only he can meet. Because Jesus is God. He knows exactly what's going on in that woman's life. He knows exactly what's in her past. He knows exactly what chord this was going to strike in her life. Jesus is driving home this point that she is a sinner with a great need in her heart and life. And he's going to show us that there can be no relief from sin found without the admission of guilt and repentance from sin. As the prophet wrote Isaiah in Isaiah 55, verses 6 and 7, Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts. Let him return to the Lord and he will have mercy upon him and to our God, for he will abundantly pardon. One author said it this way, that in order to make it possible for the woman to receive the living water about which Jesus spoke, it would be necessary for her to deal with the tragic nature of her sinful life. And the same is true for, for us today. You cannot receive the redemption of Jesus and the promise of eternal life until you're willing to come face to face with this fact. You are a sinner and have no hope in yourself. Sin isn't a character flaw. It is an an internal problem with eternal ramifications. Sin is vital to the message of Christianity because it's the starting point of that message. We must admit that we are sinners and that it's impossible for us to be happy just as we are. And that's one of the biggest lies that sin tells us in our lives. That, hey, you have a problem, but you're okay. You can be happy just the way you are. But deep down inside, we know that's not true. Deep down inside, we wrestle with those things in our lives. And when you are willing to confess and repent from your sin, then you're ready to embrace the Savior. And Jesus, as all-knowing God, knows this woman's specific sin problem. Therefore, he calls for her to do the one thing that she cannot do. She cannot go and call for her husband. And we see that in her response. Now, consistently in this passage, I want you to notice that this woman, even in the Greek language, is continually and consistently verbose with Jesus. She has a lot of things to say. Yet, when he tells her to go and call her husband, in the Greek, there are only three words to convey this message. I have no husband. It's almost as you can feel the evasiveness with which she replies. Now, she isn't lying outright, but she also isn't telling the whole truth. And Jesus, as God, knows this and reveals this knowledge to her. And Jesus commends her for her truthfulness and what, as, as, as far as she had been truthful. For indeed, she does not have a husband. And, and Jesus then reveals his knowledge of her life circumstances and, and gives us more insight as to what has happened in her life. In fact, she does not have a husband. She has had five husbands in her lifetime. Now, the text doesn't tell us how these husbands had come into her life and passed, whether through divorce or death. Perhaps, though, we can, we can gauge some of what that may have been like in her life because of her present circumstances in her life. 
she has had in her life, she has in her life now, a man who is not her husband with whom she lives immorally. And in this, Jesus clearly calls out the sin she currently lives in, that that having experimented five times previously with marriage, she has skipped the marriage part and taken up to living with someone. But Jesus refuses here to call this marriage, and thus it goes against the law of God. To understand this, that God's intention, that for the deepest, most intimate of all human relationships, belongs to a husband and a wife in marriage. And so Jesus exposes her sin here. And honestly, if you read it, and you just put yourself in that moment, it's a very uncomfortable scene, is it not? The exposition of sin in our lives does make us uncomfortable. Have you ever experienced the uncomfortable nature of your sin? Have you ever experienced someone else calling out a sin in your life and how uncomfortable that makes you feel because you know it's right? Because you know it. Not not that that what you're sinning is right, but what they're right about you, that you have a problem. If you don't know the Lord, it's a very uncomfortable thing because you know it's wrong and and you just don't know what to do about it. And so, when sin is brought up and and things in your life you know are wrong, you you try to put it out of your mind, you, you try to explain it away, you try to cover up the feelings of guilt that push in on your heart and life. And often... We dismiss sin outright in our lives because we're not as bad as we used to be. Or, hey, we're not as bad as somebody else. And therefore, we satiate our consciences by a process of comparative theology. Well, hey, listen, if you knew me five years ago, then you'd know I'm pretty good. Well, hey, if you knew my neighbor, man, you really... Hey, if you knew my mom, if you knew my dad, if you knew my sister, if you knew my brother, if you knew... Then you'd think I'm a pretty good person. And you know what? You might be right. You might be right that there is somebody else that if we met them, we'd say, oh, yeah, you're pretty good. The problem with that is that that while it might make you feel good for the moment, it doesn't erase the questions and anxiety of your heart because you know something is off. Because the standard isn't what you used to be, and the standard isn't what somebody else is. The standard is the holiness of God. And when you understand the holiness of God, you can't rest in the sinfulness of your own life. And if, if there is to be any change effected in our lives, the first step is to come face-to-face with the real problem. And the woman here before Jesus struggles to do that even in her own life and will instead seek to put Jesus to the test. And we'll look at that here in just a minute. But here's the other side of it. If you sit here today and, and you know the Lord is your Savior and you, you, you claim this life of, of what we call Christianity Sin should make us uncomfortable, for that's not how God has called us to live. And so, if we are tolerating sin in our lives, we feel uncomfortable when it's brought up. Conviction is a powerful thing that God uses in the lives of Christians as well as unbelievers to show us our sin and to draw us closer to himself. And and we should not shy away or or run from the conviction of God on our sin, but instead thank him for it and, and with his help change those things which he has shown us with his help. And we see here, though, that the subject change that this woman seeks to engage in when Jesus faces her with her own sin. Look at verse 19. The woman said to him, Sir... I perceive that you are a prophet. Our fathers worshipped on this mountain, and you Jews say that Jerusalem is the place where one ought to worship. Now, to her credit, the woman 
does not seek to hide her lifestyle of sin and wrongdoing. She affirms Jesus' mind. You catch that? Sir, I perceive you're a prophet. No, really, right? If you were faced in that moment, you and I would probably say the same thing, right? Obviously, this guy knows something because he knows exactly what's going on in my life. He knows exactly what's happened to me in the past. And so in her mind, Jesus must be gifted by God with some supernatural insight. He has shown her his knowledge of her darkest secrets and sin. And so therefore, what does she do? Does she ask him how to eternally be satisfied? No, she seeks to put him to the test. In verse 20, we read that. Because often, when we are faced with sin in our lives... Or we, we have a conversation with someone about our sin. That, that one of the things we run to is to begin these discussions on where we differ in points of theology. I have found that oftentimes with both Christians and non-Christians alike, that the minutia of biblical interpretation or the discussions of how Christians view things are suddenly extremely vital as they seek to skirt the conviction of sin that God has undertaken in their lives. And this point of Israelite theology is something that she feels can be answered by Jesus, and it doubles to move the focus from herself back to the stranger before her. And how quickly sin makes us change the subject in our lives. When God begins to convict our hearts, we look for a way out. We change the subject, we leave the room, we physically seem to take on these avoidance measures, And here, this woman does this by raising questions about worship to God. I want you to know this kind of goes back to that old Jews versus Samaritans thing. The Samaritans, having only accepted the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Old Testament, did not believe Jerusalem was the place to worship God. Now, both the Jews and the Samaritans believed God had appointed a place of worship, as he said in Deuteronomy 12, verse 5, but you shall seek the place where the Lord your God chooses out of all your tribes to put his name for his dwelling place, and there you shall go. But at this point, the Jews, having accepted the, the entirety of the Old Testament, from Genesis to what we know as, as Malachi, okay, the, the law, the prophets, the history, all of these things is inspired by God, they knew that that place that God chose, that he referenced in Deuteronomy, is Jerusalem. Because in, in 2 Chronicles 6.6, 6, we read, Yet I have chosen Jerusalem. That my name may be there, and I have chosen David to be over my people, Israel. Now, in the Old Testament, or in the, in the Pentateuch, you would read that Mount Gerizim was a place where the blessings of the covenant were to be proclaimed when the people took the land. So the Samaritans, having only accepted the Pentateuch, concluded that this was the place of worship. So when the woman here refers that, that our fathers worshiped on this mountain, and you Jews say that in Jerusalem is a place where one, is, one ought to worship, that's what she's referring to. She's referring to that, that, that the Samaritans and her ancestry worshiped God on Mount Gerizim in Samaria, while the Jews worshiped God in Jerusalem. And so, wishing to remove attention from herself and show off her religious knowledge and to put Jesus to the test, this woman asked this question. Because one thing is certain, they both can't be right. It has to be one or the other. And now she awaits his answer, and Jesus, as only he can, shows her the true truth of it all and the need, uh, the need that, that, that to meet the problem of the sin that she has in himself. We see lastly here in this passage before us today, 
not only the sin that was in her life, but the Savior that stood before her. In verse 21, Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when you will neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem worship the Father. You will worship, you worship what you do not know. We, we know what we worship, for salvation is of the Jews. But the hour is coming, and now is, when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth, for the Father is seeking such to worship him. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. Jesus delves in to, to the answer of her question, but really the answer of her overall concern and, and issue that she needs with the true nature of worship. See, Jesus' direct answer on the question is one that takes neither option A or B, but, but kind of this none of the above, as we'll see. Jesus instead doesn't reveal, although he will confirm about, about where true worship has been taking place, but he's going to, to, to reveal what is to come through himself. Soon, Jesus says, there will be no right place, as it were, to worship God. Neither Mount Gerizim nor Jerusalem will be the place to go in obedience to God's law of worship. And this is more than a reference to the coming time in 70 AD when the temple would be destroyed and many Samaritans would be killed on Mount Gerizim. This is not a treatise on what Christians do in a corporate worship service on a Sunday or a Wednesday or any other time that they meet. No, this is an explanation of the gospel. This is a proclamation that the whole sacrificial system of Israel is about to be replaced because the Messiah has come. The Lamb of God was on earth preparing to take away sin. And with his death and resurrection, Jesus would establish a new and a better covenant. A covenant of grace. However, Jesus does not shy away from the truth revealed in God's word. He says in verse 22, you worship what you do not know. We know what we worship, for salvation is of the Jews. Jesus is confronting the the, the lack of embracing the full revelation of God that is seen in the lives of the Samaritans. In this sense, Jesus says, they worshiped what they did not know. They do not know the whole truth because of their very limited view of the Scripture. Because they would not accept what God had given through the prophets and through others, they would not know and fully understand the message that was revealed by God. They also then understand, Jesus says, or Jesus says, instead the Jews are right and they have embraced the full revelation of God. And they also understand that salvation comes from the Jews. Revelation about God's salvation came through his chosen people, Israel. And the one who would bring about that salvation, the Messiah, also came from the Jews. This goes all the way back to Abraham and the promise that God made to him that through him all nations of the earth will be blessed. It goes all the way back to David, whom God made a covenant with and said the Messiah would come from his lineage. This is not a declaration that only Jews can find eternal life, but the only way to heaven and eternity is from the Jews. And this is where we come to this point that Christianity is both inclusive and exclusive. 
Christianity is inclusive in that all are welcome to find salvation from sin, new life, and eternity in Jesus Christ. God does not pick and choose. God does not have some who come to him and he casts them out and says, well, you're no good. You're not accepted here. But all who come to the Father find life in Jesus Christ. But it's also exclusive because its basic tenet and the truth is this, that Jesus is the only way to eternity. This is the message shown time and again by Jesus himself. It is a message that he shares with this woman here. Jesus says that the hour is coming and now in when true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. Jesus says that true worship will not occur in a place, but in one's heart through himself. And this transformation is already underway because the Messiah has come. Jesus says that God must be worshipped in spirit and in truth. Worship to God isn't based on mere actions and, and rituals that are performed outwardly, but instead it is an embracing of the truth. It is recognizing that God isn't located to one place, but is indeed everywhere. It is affirming that God is only accessible through Jesus. It is worshiping God through the coming work of Jesus, and this time, in our time, the finished work of Jesus. So we must approach God in that truth. We must also approach God in spirit. This means that we worship God from our inner being with everything we are. We understand it isn't about our location, but it's about our heart's condition. And that, again, is where we hammer back around to the truth of it all, that we must embrace the truth about who God is, who we are, and how we may come to him. If you and I do not embrace the truth about God, there can be no worship. We must approach God honestly and wholeheartedly. We must embrace the biblical revelation that he is the savior of all mankind, that he has died and risen again, we must receive the testimony that Jesus is who he says he is, the savior of the world. And we must embrace this truth, that we are who he says we are. Sinners in need of him. Only when we do that, through a relationship with him. And as this woman heard this, her confusion pushed her to the future and further promises that she had heard. We see the true identity of the Messiah when the woman said to him, I know that Messiah is coming, who is called Christ. When he comes, he will tell us all things. Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. This woman at the well has heard a lot of things this day. She has been confronted with sin. She's been offered the hope of eternal life. She has been directed to an imminent time when worship belongs not to a place, but is predicated on the heart. And she turns to who has always been the future hope of Israel. The future hope from that day, from, from hundreds of years past to the day the woman stands at that well, has always been the Messiah. One day he will come. 
One day he will do all these things. One day he will tell us these things. He will clarify all the hard-to-answer religious questions. He will fulfill all the Old Testament scriptures. And ever since Adam and Eve sinned in the Garden of Eden, that hope had been expected and predicted. The promises to Abraham that were passed to Isaac and passed to Jacob that were made to David and the predictions made by the prophets pointed to the deliverer who would bring hope and life and eternity. And in one great statement, the Messiah is revealed to the woman. Because Jesus says in no uncertain terms who he is to her. Now you'll notice, I don't know if you have a Bible like this, but in, that, in, in the Bible in front of you, you may notice that that last word of verse 26 is in italics. Now it's not there to show you this is a super important word. It's there to show you that in the original text, that, that word is not there. It's been supplied to help you understand the statement. But in so doing, I would argue that it's actually complicated the statement. Because the verse should read as follows. I who speak to you am. And if you know your Old Testament theology, you know that I am is the name that, G- that God gave to Moses, that God was known by to his people. What is Jesus saying? I am God. I am the Messiah. I am the self-existent one. I am the deliverer. I am the promised one. I am. He is not only claiming to be the Messiah, but also equating himself with God. What an incredible revelation and, and one that certainly must take this woman aback. Because just a little bit before this, there was nothing but a man asking for a drink in her mind. Now, he is claiming to be the Messiah after revealing incredible knowledge of her life and speaking of things that are great and hard to comprehend. And here's what you come to realize. This is what people came to realize in Jesus' days, what we come to realize in our day as we read the scriptures. Jesus' life and ministry back up what he says. He truly is the Son of God, the hope of man's salvation from sin. And he has made himself known to mankind no matter who they are or what defines them. Just take a look at the two most recent interactions of Jesus in the Gospel of John. If you go back to John chapter 3, which we talked about a few weeks ago, you would find this interaction that Jesus had with a man named Nicodemus. And this man couldn't be more opposite of what we have just observed. For Nicodemus was a devout religious Jew, and here was an immoral Samaritan woman. He was a studied leader of the people. She was presumably a peasant. Nicodemus had come recognizing Jesus as a teacher in Israel when she had no clue who Jesus was. Nicodemus was an elite when this woman was from what many would call that day the dregs of society. And these two people together, both Nicodemus and this woman at the well, serve to remind us of who needs the message of the gospel. Everyone does. The sinfulness of mankind isn't limited to one, anyone in particular, for all fall short of God's glory. And in the same way, the love and the grace and the mercy of God are just as limitless and just as boundless. He reaches out to all, showing them their need of sin and their need, or their need of him to save them from their sin. And the Messiah breaks down all barriers in the establishment of his eternal kingdom, and he calls all today to come to him for living 
water. Jesus is the only source to meet the need that all mankind experiences, eternal satisfaction and security in him as the eternal Savior. So to go back around to what I started with this morning, the definition of Christianity isn't found in yourself. It isn't found in adjusting your behavior, in leaning into self-acceptance, or even in just doing your own thing and letting God do his. The definition of Christianity is found in Jesus Christ. Jesus is the only way to God. The only hope for heaven is found in him alone. The definition of Christianity is the message of Christianity. Worship the God of the universe through a relationship with Jesus. Don't settle for conscience-soothing actions and religions, but find true help and rescue from your sin in him alone. Jesus calls you to turn from your sin and your rebellion against him and find eternal rest and peace in himself. He calls you to recognize the holiness and justice of God revealed against sin and to embrace the love and the grace of God offering you forgiveness and eternal change in himself. And you can do this today. You can have your questions answered, your sins forgiven, and your eternity settled because God's word has all the answers. And so today, I would ask you this. How is your worship? If true worship of God is found in spirit and truth, we must continue to walk in the truth of God's word. I would tell you this, if the word of God isn't convicting you of sin and drawing you, more, uh, drawing you to more change for the Lord, I guarantee it isn't because you've reached the pinnacle of your Christian walk. It's because you've stopped listening. You've come up with reasons not to listen to God. You've come up with excuses and, and pointed fingers. But God is still there. And he still wants to grow and change you. God's word should invoke in us the need for continued growth and change in himself. Not that we may earn salvation. Not that we may keep our salvation or stay on God's good side. But so that we may live out the new life he has called us to live in him. God's work in our lives for eternity also affects our lives on this earth, changing us to be more like himself. So if you live a life minimizing your need of spiritual change and spend your time justifying your views, then you will always lead a life of extremely stunted spiritual growth indeed. The author of the hymn that, whether you've been in church or not, Amazing Grace, that most of us know, right? Said it, his name was John Newton, and he said it this way as he reached the end of his life. My memory is nearly gone, but I remember two things. That I am a great sinner, and that Christ is a great Savior. Will you embrace the calling of salvation from the Savior today? Will you engage in the change of your Lord today? And listen, I, I don't know the heart of each person who's walked in here today. That's the, the things that are the, the deepest, darkest parts of your heart or the things that are closest to you. That's between you and the Lord. But I know this. No matter what you face, no matter what you think, the answer and the hope is found right here. 
It's not found in a guy who stands behind a wooden podium on a platform of a church. It's not found in the person who sits next to you. It's not found in the family that loves you and cares for you. It's found in Jesus Christ alone. Whether you be wrestling with your eternity and what will happen to you when you die, or you be wrestling with the sin or the things that hold you back and the things you know you need to change, the answer is found in God. And I just invite you today, as we close the service in a few minutes, if there's something that's on your heart, or something you'd like to talk about, I would love the opportunity to, to talk with you or someone else in the church would, would love to connect with you about that if you prefer. We're not, we don't give formal invitations here on a regular basis, but I'm giving you this invitation today. That if there's something on your heart and your mind, there's something that, that God is dealing with you, I invite you not to leave here today without dealing with it. I invite you to, to stay in your seat to find someone to to talk with, to pray with, whatever you need to do to make that change. I'll be around after the service. I'll I'll end up, you know what I did today? I'll I'll be up here at the front. If there's something you'd like to talk about after the service is over today, I'd love a chance to connect with you on that because there is hope and there 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 are answers to be found from God. And if there's anything we can do to help you with that today, we'd love to do that. Father, we thank you for your word and its power in our lives. We thank you for Jesus Christ who has given himself as a sacrifice to take away the sin of the world. We thank you for the simple yet very clear instructions and and interactions that you have given in your word. And we ask today that you would have the freedom to do your work in our hearts. God, undoubtedly, in a place like this, and with this many people, there are, there are a lot of questions on hearts today. There are questions about eternity. There are questions about our temporal lives. There are struggles that, that, are, uh, that we have. There are battles that we have waged in our hearts and lives. There are things we have told no one about. But you know our hearts. We ask today that you would convict us of our sin. That you would humble us before yourself. That you would help us to find, first of all, life in Jesus, the Son of God, for eternity. The second, as a Christian, help us to live life in Jesus, the Son of God. To live for eternity. To realize that the, the things of this world, though we need to take care of them, though we can enjoy them, but at the end of the day, they don't matter. What matters is being right with you. What matters is making a difference for you. What matters is making a difference for eternity. God, make us more like yourself. Show us the hope of the gospel. Fill us with the compassion of Jesus Christ. We ask as we leave this place today, you would watch over and protect us, bring us back tonight to worship you. In your name we pray, amen.